I, I had no money to bring to the table. All I had was my work ethic and, you know, what I believed to have some skill. And I had to convince uh, my partners, you being one of them, that I was a, a valid investment to throw some cash at, knowing that uh, we didn't know how much money we needed to spend. We didn't know uh, at what rate it needed to be spent. This was not a model that we had tried before in any meaningful fashion. So it was uh, a lot of risk on everyone's part. But I needed to be very, very good at convincing people to, to throw a little bit of cash at me uh, because the, the long-term payoff was going to be, you know, in my, in my case, when I was getting started, at least six months till the first uh, check came in from a customer. So it was, uh, I, had to, I had to get good at raising capital from friends that, uh, that fortunately worked out really well. Welcome to the Edge of Excellence podcast. This show is for current and aspiring leaders that are dedicated to showing up every day in their lives with excellence. We break down the careers of those excelling so you can understand what is out there and how to rise up in every field you choose. Let's get the show on the road, shall we? Your host has spent his life promoting global entrepreneurship, helping 20-somethings find their passion and working to help others achieve excellence. CEO of CollegeWorks, Matt Stewart. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to share with a buddy in need. You know you have a buddy trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. Today, we've got Mike Profont, CEO and co-founder of Empire Community Construction. You want to be a CEO? You want to be an entrepreneur? You maybe want to go into big construction? He's going to talk about how he started a company with no money. He's going to talk about the skills it takes to be a budding entrepreneur versus an entrepreneurial CEO. And he's going to talk a lot about the role of CEO and what exactly the job entails so you can figure out what skills you need to develop. Welcome to the show and welcome to the Edge of Excellence. Mike Prabhant, thank you so much for taking time away from your, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 companies that your partner's in and your, I don't know, 1,000 employees to come talk to us about what it's like to be a CEO, um, what the path is to get there, what you do. But before we get there, we're going to do two things. One, I need to get your definition of excellence. And two, I love a wonderful story of what life's like uh, for someone in their early 40s that's running a $100 million business. Uh, but let's start off with what is your definition of excellence, Mike Profont? Fantastic. Well, Matt, thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, setting this up. This is a this is a neat opportunity for me to tell a little bit about myself and uh, what I do and how I got here. So this is this will be super fun. Good question on definition of excellence because it definitely changes depending on uh, you know the year or the day or even the the month you're at. But overall, if I were to look back at the at the last 15, 20 years. I think the definition would have to involve some degree of personal and professional growth on a consistent basis, always getting a little bit better over and over and over again. That's how I would sum up excellence. And how do you do that? Uh, it's a, uh, it is, it is a interesting art form because there's not one clear path to, to getting better every day. It, it is a combination of risk assessment Taking chances, understanding the uh, playing field you're on, being willing to take a leap to the playing field you're not on, and uh, hopefully doing it with some really, really good people that can help to uh, uh, get you better because doing it alone is hard and lonely. So it's, a, it's, a, it's about the good people and, and the timing. 
Well, right on. Well, let's talk about what happens when personally and professionally you grow on a consistent basis for many years and always getting better for many years. What's it like? You know, now you're now you're a CEO. You've got the hundred million dollar business. People listening here thinking, I want to be a CEO. I want a hundred million dollar business. What's life like for a CEO? Tell us a great story of a benefit of where you're at in life. Yeah, sure. So it's uh, it's super fun being the CEO of a hundred million dollar company, given the uh, the f- uh, the freedom that comes with it. So lots of responsibility and lots of obligations to to my uh, team and partners. But at the same time, that gives me a ton of flexibility to pack up my adventure van, throw the mountain bike in the back, and just head off grid for a couple of days, go camping, go riding. Uh, if the snow's super good, I can jump in a, a plane with, with a couple hours notice and, and be skiing that afternoon uh, and have a lot of flexibility to do my job from uh, virtually anywhere in the world as long as there's a decent internet connection. So that's the, uh, the best thing for it. Obviously, at some point, you, you know, it's nice to be able to spend whatever money you want to spend, but it's more about having the, the flexibility and the time to go do fun things with, with your buddies. And that's really what I enjoy. And the freedom to choose when you're doing fun things, when you're working. I mean, people listening, they want a plane, they want a vacation house, they want millions of dollars, uh, and they don't know how to get there. So we're going to get into that today. How did Mike make that happen? And we're going to go way back. We're going to go way, way, way back to the Valley. It, during during the Valley Girl days, and I know the answer to this question, but back in the day when you oh, you went to UC Santa Barbara, so you must have gotten good grades, but... You, you're, you look like a derelict. Were you a derelict or were you really on the up and up? No, I was um, I was definitely a derelict. There's no question about it. I, uh, I was fortunate enough that I could uh, I could get by in school well enough to be accepted to UC Santa Barbara. I certainly wasn't a great student, but, you know, I'd spend time in the honors courses uh, because those were interesting and, and fun. I would spend time making sure I had a decent SAT score. But I was, uh, you know, as of turning 16, Got the car, got some gas money, and uh, pretty much was on my on my way to, to being a derelict. So fortunately, UC Santa Barbara had some low admission standards that year, and I got in. I was very pleased at that. Well, probably not that low. So you probably got pretty good grades. <laughs> well, I, uh, UC San Diego did not accept me. Santa Barbara did. So I was, in, I was somewhere in that perspective, that, that, that scope. So UC Santa Barbara is number 32 ranked in the nation. Uh, UC San Diego, I think, is number 35 now. Um, so so you must have had pretty good grades. You must have had pretty good scores. But that was natural aptitude. It wasn't it wasn't hard work and focus. You kind of got lucky. And some people do. So you kind of got lucky. You went to Santa Barbara. And I, and I knew you then. I didn't rem- remember you as being somewhat of a derelict back then. So did you change your derelict ways or did they continue in college for a bit? So it was a uh, it was a a fortunate turn of events as I bounced around majors, uh, picking everything from film studies to history to business, and and just you know I might I might have switched majors five or six times trying to figure out what was the most interesting, what was the what was the thing that kept me engaged. Uh, landed on history, which was great. That actually brought my grades up, super enjoyable. Uh, at one point, I thought about wanting to be a lawyer. Uh, I don't know why. Um, uh, there's some family background there. That, the derelict, uh, the derelict, and you wanted to be a lawyer. Exactly. Because all lawyers are derelicts. All lawyers are derelicts, and I knew that, and I figured that might be a good path where I could I could hide my derelictness uh, and uh, and pursue that legal that legal career. But uh, I know I really didn't clean up my act until I was uh, um, uh, went and joined College Works Painting and and found the need to present a more professional image of myself to my clients. 
And uh, I didn't cut my hair, but I did put it in a ponytail. Oh, I didn't remember that. All right. <laughs> so um, you you were kind of going through life, smart dude, a great aptitude, probably had some strong work ethic, but kind of hadn't found your path. You went to college, still searching for your path like a lot of people. And then you found college works. Other people find other things, but you found something to kind of push yourself and opened your eyes to maybe what you're capable of. And right out of college, and I remember this because I got married that same time, I went on my honeymoon and you decided, wait a second, I want to be an entrepreneur and talked my other partners into starting up College Works Division in Washington, which was your first entrepreneurial venture. So you were how old? Uh, let's see. That would have been 22 years old. Is when so I, 22 uh, years old, showed, that. and this is this is the pattern for people listening. We're going to talk to Mike about how to start a business with no money. We're going to talk to Mike about how do you start a business out of school. He found his partners, and he found a system to, to create in college at CollegeWorks. It doesn't have to be CollegeWorks. You don't have CollegeWorks if you're not in the Midwest. So you look at the other internships, look at the other jobs, look look to other areas where you can find opportunities and start to see your path. So he found a path that was CollegeWorks and there you were really successful, right? So you found something that, you, that and I'm going to come back to that history too. You had your natural abilities, your natural intelligence, um, your natural people skills, your natural work ethic. You're kind of lost looking for a career and a job, trying to find what you said. History was interesting, something interesting. And the college works thing must have been interesting to you or the business thing. What was it that interested you as a college works intern that drove you into starting a division of college works and then starting a bunch of other companies later? Yeah. So I think it's the, uh, the, the it was a unique combination of doing something repeatedly that you could measure how much better you got at it. So in college works for me, it was either doing presentations to homeowners to, to um, sell, uh, sell the exterior painting projects or, or probably more specifically the recruiting aspect where you got lined up 10, 11, 12 hours a day of just interviewing people and getting better and better at that process. So it allowed for an extremely quick learning curve on, on improvement because of the um, just the intense nature of doing it over and over again uh, and getting better and better and better at it. So you, you uh, the way I would look at it is it packed in several years worth of work experience into three to six months. Uh, and that just was a, uh, an amazing springboard. And it was super interesting uh, for that reason. It was interesting because of the constant improvement, because of the the... the uh... Um, development curve you could kind of see in yourself as you were going exactly exactly with everything being measured um it was it was uh you know i'm naturally a pretty competitive guy never really played any sports in, in that sense but always uh very very competitive and when especially when it comes to making money uh and this was a this was a super fun way for for myself and, and my other co-workers to to kind of compete and you know i still keep in very close contact with friends of mine from back in that day and although we're in completely different careers spanning the globe, uh, there's always, a, you know, when we get, when we do get together once a year, we're always trying to uh, to see who's got the better lifestyle, who's got the, the you know, the faster plane, who's got the uh, uh, the fastest car, that kind of thing. So the, the competitive nature uh, is something that, that I learned in College Works and was terrific to, that I've got that. So you still have the same kind of, is it four or five best friends? There's that four of us, yeah. They, they all did the internship together back back in the day. Uh, all of us went in very, very different directions after college, and uh, uh, we've all been very successful. But it's uh, that's that's our common 
our common DNA is, is that, uh, uh, that work experience and that competitiveness. Yeah. So you're listening right now. They did something really hard. They did something that people aren't supposed to do. And just like winning a championship, you get tied to your team because you've done something amazing. They became tied together. We see that a lot. And right out of college, um, you decided you were going to start a business with us. And I remember this. It was 1997. Um, I was getting married. We're going to start a business with Matt Landauer in uh, in Colorado. Oh, no, that's not right. We were starting a business with you in Washington, and Matt Landauer added himself later. He, 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 that was my number one competition back then, and he didn't want to feel left out, so he uh, moved to Denver. Yeah, you were the planned one that we put, and it was a big risk for me because we had no money, and we were financing it. So doing one was good. Adding Matt Landauer was a little risky, and that happened while I was gone. So I came back to double the burden. But interesting, you wanted to just get out and do it yourself, so you went up and started a business with us, a partnership, in uh, Seattle. And so one way to get to the role of CEO is to start a business, become CEO immediately. Hard to do if you don't have any money. Uh, another way is to grow in a company, uh, which you grew in, in the CollegeWorks business, but you got to the ceiling. So you create a new division of a company. That's another way to do it. And a third way to do it is to grow up in a company and either laterally move to other companies or in the same company, keep getting promoted. You decided to go off and start a division. And looking back at that, how did you make that choice that that was a good choice for you? And what were some of the things that really made it work? If you're giving advice to someone in their car right now, listen to this on 1.5 speed that's in their 20s that wants to go, you know, do something either with partners or on their own. Um, how did it work and and what really made it work? So it was a uh, it was a decision I made because the other options uh, were, were frankly quite boring. It was going to go work in a uh, I think I had one job offer from a large construction company being an assistant project manager. The pay was fine. But it was going to, I, I quickly, you know, I talked to some people that were working there and I really felt I would be bored extremely fast. I, you know, I'd been an entrepreneur for a couple of summers, you know, working, working my, my house painting business. So it, it became, this was going to be the most interesting choice, uh, by far the most risky choice. I believe my salary at that point in time was $2,000 a month. Um, so it was definitely the lowest paid option, but it was also the, the riskiest option and the most interesting option. So that's why I chose it. I figured I, I, I hate being bored. So that was the, uh, the, the, the most uh, creative way for me to, to spend my days. Um, in terms of what made it work. Well, real quick, uh, real, real quick. You, you hear people talk all the time that if you love what you do, it's not work. You have a different way of saying it. If you're interested in what you do, it's easier to go to work. So you find, you're looking for things that are interesting. Maybe you were just bored in high school, and that's why you were a little bit of a derelict. I know oh, I was a little oh, bit of a derelict. absolutely, without question. Yeah, so yeah. you were looking for ways to not be bored and focus that derelict or, uh, energy into something productive. And so you found this business, and how did it work? I started to interrupt. So it, um, it, it, was, it was fascinating because I was entirely uh, alone, except for um, I, my partners, Matt, you, yourself included, would come and join me probably every six weeks for a, a, a day or two, uh, have some dinners, work on the business together, and then I would be back alone. Uh, and so it was very much my success or my failure was entirely dependent on my actions. So I think that's one of the reasons why it worked is there were no outside forces to, to, de to derail my success. If I got up and got, got out there and, and got onto campus and started my business, it was entirely up to me. If I took a week off and nothing got done, that was entirely up to me. So I was pretty motivated to make it work because it was all on my shoulders. 
And so that's uh, until I actually got some people hired and, and brought in some great team members. That's why it worked was simply because I was, I was willing to go out there and grind. And uh, that was, that's the, if there's one thing that I would, I would impart to anyone listening is you got to be willing to put in some hours to just really grind at some menial tasks to build what you really want. It doesn't happen overnight. So anyone that starts a business is going to be alone because you usually, maybe you have a partner and you and your partner are alone. Maybe you have partners and you and your partners are alone, but you're usually alone when you start a business. You're usually alone. You're more than alone. You were alone, not in your hometown. You're alone in a different town. Yeah, I've never been there before. Yeah, so you're alone, alone. And so um, not having the friends there to take, let's go out, let's go do this, let's go do that, that helped you stay focused on the grind. If you're not in a different city, you've got to learn to tune that out. So one of the keys to success is the hard work, the focus. You also basically burnt the bridges. You moved to a different place. There's no going back. Um, so you got no distractions in a new place. You got no going back. It's all up to you. It's interesting to you. And what would be the steps for someone that wants to start a business? You know, what were the th- mental steps in the game? Um, I think there has to be a uh, a willingness to take risk, of course, and a an understanding of what metrics you're going to use to to gauge your progress. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that's so intangible about starting a business is you don't know what the goal is. I had no idea what my goal was other than let's get this thing off the ground and, and take it step by step by step and then assess a month later. Did you did you get kind of closer to where you think the business needs to be? So you need to be able to, to measure performance on a short period of time, basically a week at a time. How did we do this week? And that's all you really have. Uh, and not worry too much about what things look like in a year because no one knows. So you take it piece by piece by piece and be willing to put that that energy in there. Uh, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting, right? You really don't know what the setbacks are because you're starting a business. So the obvious setbacks are running out of money. That's sure. That's a big setback. But outside of that, you don't have any customers that are upset with you because you're just getting started. You don't have any customers that love you because you're just getting started. So it's a... Uh, it is a blank canvas in that respect. So you have to be willing to to, to look at it on a week by week basis and, and build from that and not worry what look, things look like in six months. So we missed a step. We got the step two, have no distractions, grind it out. We got the step three, measure your performance to weekly goals. A lot of people get started in a business and they don't have goals and they're just you know, scouting territories, thinking about things. You got to get to action. You, you're, at, you're out there day one on a campus, making relationships, um, sourcing people to hire. You're out there day two doing interviews. You're out there week, uh, month three, training up new employees. Uh, you are hitting things to get momentum. You're not designing brochures, but step one was picking what industry and how to finance it. So you kind of, you kind of, that's a, that's a weird way to do it, but it's the weird way you did it, but it's probably the same way everybody, almost everybody does it. You're in a business and that's where the idea came from. Other people might be, in, they're working with people. They think they can do it cheaper, faster, better. They're working in a company. They don't like the company. They want to go start it on their own. They have friends that work somewhere. They they think they can do it better. You know, you're usually, the, the idea is usually in your face. If you don't know anything about it, you're probably not going to have a great idea. There's probably some exposure that gives you confidence. So you're exposed. You've been successful. Um, you like the model. So that's the picking of the model. The financing is interesting because people always ask, 
uh, you know, how do you get the money? Where's the money come from? And they always underestimate it. You did the, you became an entrepreneur with zero financing in a weird way. What'd you do? So that was the, um, that was the, 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 the partner relationship. I, I had no money to bring to the table. All I had was my work ethic and, you know, what I believed to have some skill. And I had to convince uh, my partners, you being one of them, that I was a, a valid investment to throw some cash at, knowing that uh, we didn't know how much money we needed to spend. We didn't know uh, at what rate it needed to be spent. This was not a model that we had tried before in any meaningful fashion. So it was uh, a lot of risk on everyone's part. But I needed to be very, very good at convincing people to, to throw a little bit of cash at me uh, because the, the long-term payoff was going to be, you know, in my, in my case, when I was getting started, at least six months till the first uh, check came in from a customer. So it was, uh, I, had to, I had to get good at raising capital from friends that, uh, that fortunately worked out really well. Yeah. So, so we were partners. I was 27. I didn't have any money. You know, Jay was able so Jay was to use in our business. Um, we, it was scary at 27 years old to go into a new business, but Mike had proven himself. So you, to get the funds, you have to prove yourself because it's, we're not giving away money. We're investing money. And so you went into this business with us, the same model as us, expanded the model, used our financing, were incredibly successful. You wanted to do it again. So you went and started, you moved, started another division in another state, and then something happened. You decided you didn't want to do it anymore. What happened? So I got to a point in my uh, career where I had done, I had been in my role about seven years, and I had expanded. I had doubled the size of my territory. I had, uh, 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 what I believed as I had exhausted most of my options within my, that role that I had at that time. Uh, I had a great team of people around me. The business was healthy. It was successful. But I was starting to get a little bit bored. And that's, the, that's kind of the, 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 the thing for me that I always watch out for is when do I, when do I get a little bit bored? Uh, and so I had, uh, I had an idea to start another business, same group of people, and um, moved down to Southern California and, and, and pioneered a whole other business model that I felt potentially could be larger and have um, uh, even a greater degree of flexibility and, and, uh, and fun, if you will. So that's, uh, that's what I did in, uh, 20 years ago, was to start that business. Wow, because that's not the story I tell. Uh, the story yeah, I tell well, is... So you, yeah, you saw the other side of it. No, the story I tell is you didn't like college students, and you got sick of college students and couldn't take <laughs> yeah. the college students anymore and wanted to go work in a world where people had more experience and more business maturity and uh, you spent less of the time on the basics. I love the basics. That's the story I tell is my story. That, totally there, there, is some, there is some truth to that. College students uh, at a certain point, um, you know, do, do, do have some challenges. So it's interesting because, you know, I've got buddies that grew big companies. And by the time they sold their company, they had 12% or 8% or 15% or 25%. Very few that end up with 100%. When they sell their company, very, very few because they're getting money from either some private equity firm that takes equity or they're getting a partner in there. But typically they're not 100 percent. But it seems that a lot of people in their 20s think I'm going to own it all. If I just had all the stock in Apple or Uber, how rich would I be? And I just want to make millions of dollars. But your path to making millions and millions of dollars a year, and it's been millions and millions and millions of dollars, was by giving away equity, which is interesting. So you felt that if I do it with these people, instead of doing it on my own, 
I will have an easier job, a better job. Did you think that giving away equity would get you more um, profits later in life? Or was it just the way to do it because you had no other choice? No, it was it was a, a fairly conscientious decision. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with this podcast, it's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Matt and the rest of the team put together the Edge of Excellence Bundle. In it, you'll find different tools that relate to overarching themes and topics of the show. Things like disk assessment tools, time management strategies and tactics, stress and anxiety management tools, exclusive videos and episodes from this podcast that is not released anywhere else, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of the show, you can access the Edge of Excellence bundle 100% for free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get access, all you have to do is go to www.collegeworks.com slash podcast and fill out the short form there for us to get the bundle over to you. Once again, it's www.collegeworks.com slash podcast. Now, back to the show. You know, I believe that there are there are certainly people that can pull it off and be the only person that owns everything. They're pretty darn rare. Uh, and, and I knew if I was a sole entrepreneur, I would put a lot more on my shoulders that would, would inhibit how quickly I could grow. And that's a limiting factor. So if I brought in partners and gave away you know, the lion's share of the equity in exchange for lots and lots and lots of support and cash and, and uh, infrastructure, that was a, a faster way for me to make the money I want to make. So and it had to be a partnership. And I, I mean, I've kind of alluded to it. I'll just say it. You know, we don't do that. I mean, it was a big risk. We didn't make money for 10 years in that business, did we? a long time. And when we started making money, it wasn't very much. And we lost a lot of money at first. Hundreds yeah, and hundreds of thousands years. of dollars. Millions, mm-hmm. probably. Um, but we knew that Mike was the guy. We knew that Mike could do it. Mike knew we were the guys. And we, uh, you know, when you build a partnership, it's hard to trust each other. You know, people want to overmeasure. You, you've got to have people that you, you're you going to have faith in. And when Mike had developed the faith through action for continuing doing it. If he's done it twice, why not do it a third time? But this was a whole different industry that we knew nothing about. You knew nothing about. Yeah, much higher, really high risk profile too, with with the, uh, the the scope of the projects and you know the litigious nature of the business. And when we talked to people who were saying, "Hey, we want to get into this space," they discouraged us because you know the, the collections took forever, and people like to you know the competitors were low rollers. All these very, all these obstacles were like they they didn't look good. I mean, there's definitely points where we all sat around and said, "Hey, is this the right decision?" And uh, you know, so we get a lucky break. Something good would happen, we, and we keep pushing. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the key for, for me personally was once we replicated the model, then it was pedal to the metal. It was it was on. Uh, and that's, and again, the, starting another division. So you had one division that you started that was taken over by a wonderful person who everybody loves, Aaron Boberg, and then started started another division. And you replicated that from the CollegeWorks model. We had the California, added Washington, you added Oregon. And so, so you end up with a... You're, you're back alone again. You're alone in Washington. Then you move to Oregon. You're alone in Oregon. Then you're back in California starting an empire. And you're alone again. But this time you had a partner in, in crime, Jay. So give us a little taste of someone that's sitting there thinking, ah, I want to start a business, but I don't want partners. I want to start a business. I think I can figure out the money myself. 
What do you and Jay give to each other in a partnership working side by side that creates exponential growth um, for the business? Yeah, good question. So I, I think there's two big things that come from, from a, uh, a relationship like I have with Jay. Uh, one, there is a, uh, you, you get a complementary set of skills in the sense that there are certain people that work better with some people, some personality types than others. Well, that's so, not fair. Um, so, sometimes you do. Sometimes you, you might end up with partners that have the exact same skills, which is kind of hard. That's hard. You have, you have to hire people, but you two are slightly different personalities, slightly different approaches. So you guys are able to identify what partner A is good at and what partner B is good at. And if you're going to go into business later on, you're going to have partners. You don't know for sure in the beginning, but it's, you start to become aware of what someone's good at and what someone is better than them at. And so you guys started to specialize who did what. And you're talking about with personalities. You could specialize which personality worked with the other person because you both could work with everybody, but you pick the, the winning combinations. Keep going. Yep, you look for those winning combinations. You look for skill sets that that you know people are naturally gravitate to because either they think it's just a, a, a better use of their time or they're just naturally very good at it. And so it's good to have it's great having that balance. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's not to say you couldn't do it alone, but it's certainly, I think you get faster success with a good business partner for that reason, because every, everyone's got a slightly different skill set. And to your point, Matt, if, if you're exactly the same as your business partner, uh, it may not, it may not be as suitable as if you've got some diversity there. Yeah. And, and uh, all five of us are pretty similar. So personality wise, we're, we're a little bit different skill wise. We're pretty similar. So we do have to rely on the accounting team uh, for the expertise and uh, analysis and, and direction on how to uh, utilize funds and how to improve the processes. We do have to rely on the tech teams because we know nothing about tech. Uh, we do have to rely on the legal team because we would screw everything up if it wasn't for them, but you still have a, a complimentary nature. And really it's probably more humility. You and Jay have the humility to say, Hey, Mike, you'd be better with this person than me. Hey, Jay, you'd be better at handling this than me and let each other that trust and respect to let each other go do their own thing and let each other carry the business their own way. Yeah. You got to, you got to approach it from an ego free perspective and, and what's best for the business uh, and, and remove yourself, your ego from the equation because it on in the long term, it doesn't matter. And so it's all about what's what's right for the business and what's the what's the healthy decision. So you start off and you're alone in Washington and you're grinding it out and you're doing all the interviews and you're doing all the second interviews and all the third interviews and you're meeting all all the campus people. Then you're the one going out and meeting with the clients with the with the interns. You're the one inspecting the work. You're the one hand the buck stopped with you. You know you're that small business CEO in the beginning. And you did that twice. And then you became a small business CEO. And then you became a little bit more than small. And then it was two divisions, then three divisions. And then it was however many divisions it is now. And it was 5 million, 10 million. And then it was you know, going to be 150 million. What is the day in a life like for a CEO of a $150 million business where you're at now versus, you know, what, what's changed from in the beginning, you know, where people start off after they get done listening to the show. So it's a, um, it, 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 there's, there, there are differences, but there's not as many as you'd think. Um, it's it, it, for me, my day now looks more, uh, you know, whatever happens today, I will probably not think about it. I won't worry about it. Uh, whatever's going to happen tomorrow, it probably won't, won't, won't bother me or, or impact me in the least. 
It's all about where are things going to look in the next six months or a year. I got to be looking pretty far down the field to help steer the company in the direction it needs to go. Uh, and that's probably the biggest difference. When you're, when you're starting out, you are much, much more concerned about the immediate because that's, that's what could be the landmine or the big win. Uh, and and uh, when, you're, when you're at the size I'm at right now, it's more you can celebrate a big win, but it's, you got to have 15 big wins to make the quarter. So it's, uh, it's about looking longer term. Uh, and, and that sort of a thing. But I also want to make sure that, um, you know, the, the very small nuances and the details, I still pay a lot of attention to um, because I think that's one of the reasons businesses can struggle is somebody loses sight of the small details, uh, whether it's the financials coming out on an accurate, uh, you know, in an accurate way on a, on a, on a predictable basis, uh, even to how we're paying vendors or, you know, what's our what's our current policy on on fuel cards like those little nuanced details I, I still am very involved in because I think that uh, if you set those fundamentals up, businesses will just run smoother and more efficiently. And that means more profitability. So you got to a point as a more mature CEO where you're thinking long term, you're thinking into the future, and that's helping you deal with the daily stress. All sorts of crap happened today. It's going to ruin my day. No, it's not. This is just the normal stuff that always happens. How are we moving, getting to diversification strategies? Or how are we moving on the new expansion? And how does the little things don't bother you as much if you're looking way into the distance? And then also time, because you've had so many kicks in the face and so many successes. And you know the successes you know, sometimes disappear, the kicks in the face. They don't kill you. They make you stronger. So you're shifting into that future distant look into changes, and then you have to gear the whole company. So for example, we're entering a recession. We know that interest is going up. And I know you're gearing the whole company to collect money faster so we don't lose money on interest. And to gear, to take up to sit there and go, okay, it's June 2023. Uh, we're losing a bunch of money because we're spending millions of dollars on interest since interest rates just doubled. You're too late. You're done. So you have to know, okay, the Fed's going to be changing interest. We've been looking at it all year, right? We've been predicting it. We've been reading and studying. We knew it was going to come here six months ago. We started working on accounts receivable many months ago. And you've got the people that are collecting the bills. You've got the salespeople. You've got the project manager. You have all these people involved in the relationship that we now want to hound to get money from quicker. Um, it takes a long time to identify the need to train the, the team on how they're going to handle it, to follow up, to retrain, to figure out what you missed, to fill those spots. And it's going to take a bunch of months to get ready just on a little thing like that. So you're spending a lot of your time predicting what's going to happen in the construction world, what's going to happen with our clients with these big $10 million projects, what's the next uh, uh, method of, of construction, what's the next product. That's what you spend your time doing, and, and then you spend your time implementing the preparation for the change. Is that yeah? Is that sum it up. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's it's uh, sometimes you, businesses have got to go through these difficult culture shifts, and and the collections is a really good example. We we have you know with with the essentially free money the last number of years, our uh, our, our team has been very good about just making sure people pay. But was there a huge timeline behind it? Not necessarily. It's it's not a comfortable situation to ask for money. So people were like, "Hey, let's eat. well, let's take care of that next week." Uh, and so now it's retraining and, and and shifting to where we were when we started, which was to get cash to the door as quick as possible. Uh, and now we're back to that. And 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 there's a, there's a handful of us that remember those days. 
Unfortunately, some of those folks are still around, so we can make that change easier. But there's a lot of people that have never had to go through this, and so they're learning uh, just how important this is and, and how to how to uh, you know essentially it's a new role, it's a whole new job for them to call up a customer and say, "Hey, I need my money tomorrow. You can't wait 30 days." So it's uh, um, you know businesses have to go through these these difficult training process. Uh, and we're in the midst of one right now. But it's all ultimately really good growth because we probably won't revert when when finances do get uh, a little bit easier and interest rates come down. We'll still we'll still have the same mindset we do now, which is let's get our money right away. So this will this will benefit the business for years to come. And this is just a small example. I mean, it could be uh, collections. It could be the labor market's drying up and there's going to be two percent unemployment. It could be the labor market's going to be nine percent unemployment. Part of the job of it, first you come up with the idea or usually you don't come up with the idea. Usually uh, there's something that's calling you because you have the skills and you have some experience and you think you can. Then there's the funds. Then there's just executing and going on the original plan. And the original plan is how you see the future. The original plan includes how you're going to do things. You're you're handling based on the current moment and the current environment in the in the area you're at in business and financing. And that's constantly changing. So one of your jobs is to kind of predict the changes. A second one of your jobs is design the way to deal with the changes. A third element of your job is to help implement those changes. And that's one side of being a CEO. Then another side of it is tracking what's happened in the past so you can build on that model. There's another side of the CEO. And there's another part, which is working with the team and help, having them help you build these plans, drawing out from them what they see. So it's a, a lot of job of the CEO in this process that you're talking about is collectively identifying where the business is going. And the other half is helping people pull the trigger to get there. And how has that changed from small business to big business for you? So it's, it is a it is a, a calculated uh, relinquishment of control is the way I would put it. Um, there, there's a point in the business where the people around me are are so good at what they're doing, or they're uh, they're they're proving themselves that I can give them the responsibility to come up with all their own ideas and take their own actions, taking that those sorts of decisions off my shoulders, uh, allowing me more time to go have fun. Uh, go skiing and and know that the these people are making the right decisions. Uh, or or do other things. I mean, you're not control. you're not having fun in skiing all day long. You still work your job. So maybe you're working 100 hours a week in the beginning. You don't have to work 100 hours a week anymore. You're still working hard. Um, you wouldn't be able to do it by yourself. You wouldn't have this big business. You have to uh, what do you call it? calculated relinquish of control. You have to do that, and many entrepreneurs can't. So you see entrepreneurs get stuck at a million dollars because they cannot empower their employees. Then they get stuck at 10 million. They just can't go to the next step. You have to evolve as a, a leader if you're going to be a CEO from this startup CEO to a CEO to a entrepreneurial CEO. So you go from this entrepreneur running a business to someone that's entrepreneurial but acts like a CEO with the delegation and the hiring and the empowerment and the systems and letting people do that. They say, uh, get out of their way. You get out of their way so that the team can 
kick butt and maybe even be way better than you could ever imagine yourself being. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, that's the, that, that is a very interesting way to look at it. And, uh, you know, I think we both have friends that, that over the, over their course of their business careers, they started the company, they grew the company, the company got, got big, but it wasn't going to get any bigger with them at the, at the helm. And they would need to bring in somebody to make the company better than they, they originally found it, founded it. And that's, uh, you know, I, I don't know what that looks like for us. If we ever get to the point where we're a quarter billion dollars, uh, we may need to bring in somebody better than me. Uh, hopefully so. That would be super awesome. But, it, you know, transitioning from uh, the CEO of a $5 million company, which is basically me just putting that title on my business card, to actually uh, running a $100 million company, uh, that's been super amazing and super interesting. But uh, that, that t- took a, a team of really good people and a lot of financial support. So if someone's listening today and they want to know, okay, how do I know if I have the skills? How do I know if I'll be successful? I want to do this. I want to go find an idea. I want to find someone to help finance me. I want to burn the bridges and make it happen. I want to grow and and empower others. Uh, what are the skills that you look back at that you think really made a difference for you starting and then and then really moving into that big business role? So I think that um, and this is a, this is a great question because I, I I do think back on this and 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 look around the, the people I know and try and try and try and draw correlations and whatnot. I think an ability to be very self organized is a huge asset. Being able to organize your day to maximum efficiency, very very good at spending your time on where it needs to be spent. So and that takes a high degree of organization. Uh, I've always had that. It's just been been part of my DNA. Got to have a great work ethic. No doubt about that. I think everyone agrees if you're going to do anything, you need a good work ethic. No one's going to get by without that. And I think you need a really high degree of charisma to succeed at this level. You've got to be good at selling. You've got to be good at convincing people to follow you. You've got to be very, very good at telling stories to potential investors. And, and that, that degree of charisma comes with it. I always say when I'm, when I'm hiring a new employee... I don't know if they've got a work ethic. That'll, that'll, I'll find that out in the first month of the job. But I can tell you in the interview if they've got charisma. And those, that's the number one thing I hire for. So organized equals efficient. Yes. Work ethic. I'm going to add proven work ethic because you, you want to get money. You better. And you said everyone's going to agree with that. No, not everyone's going to agree with that. There's a whole group of people that think that they're going to figure it out without working hard. And they're the same people that play the lottery. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a proven work ethic. So we all know you can do it, not just you. Charisma so you can lead. Charisma so you can sell. Charisma so you can rally the troops. And that was in the beginning, or is that the exact same skill set now? What's What those, other those, skills? Those, those skill sets are exactly the same. I, I, I would say the only thing that I had more of in the beginning would probably be the willingness to grind through something 12, 14 hours a day. Uh, but what do you have more of now? What what made the difference now? Because people don't don't go to 150 million. I would say now it is being able to impart that that organizational process down down line. The, the folks that uh, that I brought on over the years kind of have my same vision when it comes to organizing and what the process is. I think it 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 what I'm very good at is building something and then letting it letting someone else you know handle the day to day organization behind it. So my, well, I, my I would argue. Vision, you have the ability to help um, develop, help others develop leadership skills. Yes. Others develop into that role. And those others have developed businesses bigger than you and I ever ran on our own. Right. 
Um, they're better at, they've got better profit margins than we did. They've got bigger revenue than we did. They've got higher retention rates of employees than we did. They have everything better than we did. Like both's kicking both of our butts. And yes, they get some of the knowledge from us, but they have the same thing coming in that you have. They have the organization, they have the work ethic, they have the charisma, and now you're able to help them get the skills that you have, transfer that knowledge. And then I would also say your other ability, this is the most rare, the most rare, the ability to get out of the way and let them go. We already mentioned that. Mm -hmm. And then finally, and you mentioned this in the beginning, to not let things bother you. So every one of these businesses has lost money and made money. Everyone's had a good day and a bad day. We had a business in Florida that ate up all the profit for the entire national company in a couple deals. But you, you got you to gotta have the ability as, as you move through entrepreneurship to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and focus on the positive because you're getting smashed in the face quite a bit. And we mentioned 10 years of not making any money. How many years did you think it would take to make money at Empire? I thought it would be more like three years. Not one year, three years. It would cost cost nowhere near as much. Our revenue would be a billion dollars within five years. Everybody has these lofty, lofty, lofty goals, but that's not what happens typically. So you've got to have that patience and that ability to keep going and dust yourself off. So you, so now you spend a lot of time skiing in Park City and hanging out at your killer house, and your buddies come out there, and it's Andrew, Steve, and who? Uh, and Adam. Adam, how can I forget? Yep, your buddy Andrew, Adam. Andrew, Steve, and Adam. And I know Adam probably uh, expected himself to be at least as successful as he is now, but I bet you Andrew didn't. Mm-hmm. I knew Andrew would be successful, but not as successful. I knew Steve would be successful, not as successful. I knew Adam would be successful, not as successful. I knew I would be successful. I knew you would be successful, not as successful. Um, are you surprised by uh, where you're at now? And you're not done yet. You still need to be double, triple more successful in the next yeah, 10 years. a lot of work to do. But has where you're at now surprised you? Yeah, I would say absolutely it is. Uh, again, I, I didn't go to school necessarily to get a job. So I went to school because it was super interesting. And I, I loved the college experience. But I, I had eyes open that I wasn't going to go into mechanical engineering or uh, to an advanced degree. I'd figure out life when I got out of college. And you know, I knew I knew how to work hard. But honestly, I thought I would be a sole entrepreneur. I, I thought I would be running a, a small company with myself, maybe a couple of employees, and making a decent living. Uh, and you know, maybe my goal would be I have a boat. And that's, and that's what life would look like. And that'd probably be a lot of fun. But with the, with the right partners that I couldn't let down and uh, a couple of good ideas, certainly became a lot more successful than I thought. If I'd maybe moved careers into uh, technology... Uh, and was willing to put up with uh, the corporate world for a number of years. Sure, I, I probably could have been even more successful than I am now. Um, but I would have uh, also uh, had to give away a lot of my personal freedom uh, to a big, big giant tech company, which I didn't necessarily want to do. So, and, and think about some sacrifices you made early. You've mentioned a few of them. If you could go back in time and tell yourself, "Don't worry about that sacrifice. That's the best thing you're ever going to do." What would that sacrifice have been? Um, let's see. I think the sacrifice that I, I would have uh, said uh, don't worry about would have been probably the, the, the financial aspect of it. I was, I was more concerned that, hey, I, I'm going to have to make, some, you know, make rent next week or next month. I got I to gotta, I gotta figure that out right now. I would have probably worried less about that and just, and just gotten myself organized and, and moved forward and, and not stress myself out about that. Even though it was, you know, obviously you need to, you need to pay rent and all that, but 
it wasn't as it wasn't as critical in this big scheme of things as I thought. So there was times I would I would just go to, I was I was being too cheap. I would you know wouldn't wouldn't go out to dinner, wouldn't wouldn't hang out with my buddies because I'm trying to save every dime possible. I remember those times actually. So you got to balance it a little bit. Yeah, and uh, I mean. Eh- it, it also taught you to live beneath your means. It's not a bad way to start life when you're an entrepreneur and you're not making enough money and your profit's not coming in as many years as you thought it was. You learn to live beneath your means, or at least you did. Mm-hmm. Some yeah, of us had, super helpful. Some, some me, of us had credit. <laughs> gave, gave, gave me a lot more uh, flexibility to not make money for a few years. If uh, uh, if I you know if I'd had a more expensive lifestyle to start out with, it would have been harder. So. You know, I'm I'm fortunate enough. I know how to work on my own car. I can keep things running, and uh, I can live pretty cheap if I need to. And and that's uh, that can work out really well when you're starting off. Allows you to take a little bit more risk. But use up all your time now because you have lots of cars. Yeah, I do. And real quick, did you get any cool new cars? Because someone on this call on this wants to hear about it. Uh, let's see. Um, I've not gotten a new car in the last few months. The last, uh, the last was a uh, a Jeep Rubicon. So I finally put a, uh, a Jeep Rubicon in my garage. So I'm happy with that. Um, but I did find myself at a car show just yesterday looking at the new Maserati C120. Oh, I don't what's know if you've that? seen those things yet. It's Maserati's new two seater supercar. Uh, they retail for about $600,000 if you can find one. And I saw the first one ever yesterday that I'd seen, and it was pretty cool. So you like that better than the GT you were looking for? I still like the GT4, the, the, the four GTs too. So it's a matter of one car. One of those is 15 years old. One of them is one year old, and they're both about the same amount of money. So I don't know. I know which one's a better investment, which is definitely the GT, but we'll see. Do both, Michael. Do both. Just do well, both. Yeah, why not? Well, uh, Michael Profont, I know that you're super busy running this company there from Scottsdale, Arizona. Really appreciate you making some time to share your story of how to become an entrepreneur. What are the steps to entrepreneurship? What skills you need? Thank you so much for coming on the Edge of Excellence. Thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on the Edge of Excellence podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this exact episode with them. This show exists to showcase what is possible when young leaders are willing to step out of their comfort zone and choose to excel in their lives. To learn more about our internship for young and ambitious students, www.oneinternship.com podcast to see if it's something that makes sense for you. Once again, it is www.oneinternship.com slash podcast. Let this be a reminder for you to live on the edge of excellence in your business and life. See you next time.